You're now listening to the Working Poet Radio Show. This is your host, Joseph Lappin, and I'm here with Glenn Taylor. Glenn Taylor was born and raised in Huntington, West Virginia. His first novel, The Ballad of Trent's Mouth Taggart, was a finalist for the 2009 National Book Critics Circle Award. His newest book is A Hang at Cinder Bottom. Glenn, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you having me. Great. So tell me about Huntington, West Virginia. Put me in that place. What was it like growing up there? Sure. A lot of people know Huntington for a very few reasons. Mm -hmm. One, I think a lot of people associate it, especially since the film came out, We Are Marshall, several years ago, Mm -hmm. with the plane crash um, Mm -hmm. in 1970, in which the entire football team, pretty much, and some boosters and coaches Mm -hmm. uh, were coming back from East Carolina. So some listeners might be familiar with that. and there was first an ESPN documentary uh, called From the Ashes, and then later the film We Are Marshall. So sports are big in Huntington, mm-hmm. um, not only because of that, but then because of Randy Moss and Chad Pennington and Byron Leftwich. So the I football. love Randy Moss. <laughs> yeah. 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 Did you see that um, uh, ESPN? Uh, on Randy? On Randy. Yeah. I missed it. I'm a big Patriots fan, so I'm from New <laughs> oh, England. Okay. So, but yeah. yeah. But you were saying about Huntington? Yeah, it's 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 a sports town and it's a tough town. It's beautiful. When you um, say tough, what do you mean? Well, it's in the Ohio River Valley, so it's like as far west as you can get. It's on the Ohio River. It's a railroad town. It's a river town. Um, but to be honest, it saw its best economic days pre nineteen fifty, like much of the state, like mm-hmm. virtually all of the state, because of coal and because of glass industry and boxcar foundries and mm-hmm. things like that. So it's kind of a a tough town in that. Unlike many places, it's had its boom times long ago. It was a great place to grow up, don't get me wrong, but um, it's it's lost population. So it peaked around 80,000, 90,000 people in 1970, and now it's under 50,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh. my parents moved there from other parts of the state, you know, five, six years before I was born, I guess. And um, it was a good place. It still is a good place, but right now, I'm saying it's known for... Sports. It's also known. Uh, do you remember the reality show with Jamie Oliver? We were known for a while as the fattest city in America, according oh. to the CDC. And so he came there and he did this show called Food Revolution, a reality oh. show where he tried to change people's eating habits. Yeah. So a lot of people know it for that. Well, what do you want people to know it for? <laughs> I want people to know it to be like most fascinating places that are interesting to learn more about. It's much more complex than kind of the national perception or misconceptions. Um, It's actually was and still is quite a diverse place, uh, like much of coal country in West Virginia. During those boom years, like Keystone and Cinder Mm -hmm. Bottom, my my new book that you referred to, um, actually had a huge influx of not only immigrants from Eastern and Western Europe and places like Hungary and Poland, and Germany to a lesser extent, but also African-Americans coming up from the South, crossing mm. that Virginia line and going into West Virginia. Mm. And it was it just had a reputation, especially in the Black Belt and the Southern coal mm. fields, for kind of like a Wild West type of atmosphere mm-hmm. in which not only were there famous saloons, uh, houses of ill fame, which I write a lot about in this book, but also there were, you know, relatively speaking, pretty progressive um, little towns cropping up. In terms of race and religion, and um, and so as I've gotten older and become interested in Huntington's history or Southern West Virginia's history, particularly McDowell County, as this book is about, or Mingo County where my dad grew up, and that's uh, some listeners might be familiar with the movie Mate One by John Sayles. That's my dad's hometown. It's about the okay. coal mine wars. 
Uh, James Earl Jones is in that mm-hmm. movie. He actually utters um, my favorite line, even more than his Darth Vader <laughs> lines in that. And he says, um, you better watch your mouth, Pecklewood. <laughs> I, I love that line. Whenever anybody yeah. hasn't heard of the movie, mate, you want to say, yeah. tell them. Also, that movie is also narrated by um, Bonnie Prince Billy, Will Oldham. I don't know if you know the musician. Uh, but he had his first acting role in that movie. So what I like people to see Huntington and other former booming towns in West Virginia as are complex, diverse places that are full of storytellers um, with some pretty wild, interesting stories to tell. Well, I think you certainly get that in your work. It certainly comes across. But tell me, how, how has West Virginia been defined by work? I mean, this goes into Keystone and it goes into Center Bottom. And these areas of debauchery, I guess you could say, were created by work. So how has West Virginia been developed through that labor, that process? In one word, coal. I mean, obviously, um, the boom and bust nature of the state has been due to the whims of Mm -hmm. the coal industry. And and I shouldn't boil it down just to that. Obviously, there was Mm -hmm. some oil, a lot of railroads. So... The CNO, the N and W, kind of blazed through late 1800s, early 1900s, and as you said, um, a lot of the coal bosses or railroad bosses would make sure that there was plenty of nighttime entertainment for the men working in the mines mm-hmm. or laying and lining track. And so, to a lesser extent, glass, you know, as you as you talked about with Marabone. So at one point, my hometown, Huntington, had Owens, Illinois, glass factory. So you know, Oakland had one. Mm-hmm. Um, Huntington. There were several. Portland, Oregon, I think, had an Owens, Illinois. Maybe still do. It probably employed, at one point, maybe 2,000 people. I grew up right down the street from it. Mm-hmm. Um, it shut down in the early 90s, I think. And so work has defined the place, I think, by offering quite a bit of opportunity for all comers mm-hmm. at first. And then when the bottom falls out, you see kind of a kind of the contemporary perception that, that mm-hmm. we talked about a minute ago where, I don't know, folks tend to think of West Virginia as kind of this homogenous place. Sometimes it gets aligned with the South, you know, our neighboring states to the South. Sometimes it doesn't. But obviously when you're a state that is kind of a, a blue-collar working-class state that is so defined by coal, and on top of that was formed by presidential decree, you know, mm-hmm. in 1863, Abraham Lincoln making it a state as we separated ourselves from Virginia, it's a pretty uh, complex place, to say the least. So was your were your parents involved in the coal industry, or what, what was their background? Actually not. Um, I think on my mom's side, my grandfather, his dad owned a filling station in, in Fairmont, West Virginia, and then he ended up staying there and um, going uh, to medical school and becoming a doctor. So she's from up in the northern part of the state. My dad um, grew up in Maitland, as I said, in the southern part of the state. And actually, his family was not uh, in the coal industry. Both his mother and his father were school teachers. Mm-hmm. And my grandpa Taylor was a football and basketball coach and referee. And he actually played um, at a small school, uh, played football for Salem College in West Virginia. And again, those were in the early part of the 20th century when there were lots of jobs to be had mm-hmm. with things like teachers, um, you know, all over the state. And so now we find ourselves in a situation where even though my family wasn't involved in the coal industry, um, they were all, you know, everybody's families were able to kind of thrive and set down roots because of the coal and railroad industry. And now when you go to those towns in southern West Virginia, towns like Keystone, for instance, I mean, it's it's kind of sad that 
there's not much left at all. And when I say not much left, I mean literally not even much infrastructure. Mate One is, is doing relatively okay because of the Hatfield and McCoy ATV trail. So there's a lot of folks that think tourism industry can be our new savior, but I don't know that the tourism industry, you know, provides thousands of jobs. So what I'm really curious about, though, is yeah. that if you're seeing this, you're growing up around this, and, you know, work is such a big part of it. Sports is a big part mm-hmm. of your life. Right. How do you become a creative? How do you hmm. get the calling for the writing, for the itch? It's a good question. My mom was a theater major. She probably really, they, they read to us a lot, my sisters and I. Um, we were lucky, you know, just mm-hmm. had... Uh, parents who were kind of wide open to artistic pursuits mm-hmm. um my dad was a judge but he's more of a history guy a reader um and so i think that uh that they were the kind of parents who as long as you know we were like my parents were the kind of parents where if, if i was homesick as a kid my dad would go by the library and pick up you know like movies and bring them home so i could watch them and he would bring home stuff like roots you know alex haley's roots or mm-hmm. Um, he read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird to me when I was a kid. I mean, I could read at the time. Yeah. But I think he wanted to share that experience. So a lot of readers in my family. Um, he still sends me, you know, links every day. He reads the New York Times every day. Do you know about this author, Glenn? You know, so mm-hmm. they, they've always been very interested in the arts. Um, but so what, I, just what, lucky. I, what I find interesting is that most people that come on the show to talk about their creative journey, mm-hmm. they often at one point sort of recognize they're an outsider. That they were, you know, distancing themselves from their community in a way, but loving their community. Did you have a similar struggle with that? Yes, yes. Because I, I think, you know, I, I my mom always, uh, she never liked that on the day I graduated from high school, the Herald-Dispatch, our local paper, came to the Civic Center as those of us who were getting ready to graduate were lined up. And... Um, the reporter came through and said, what are you going to miss most about Huntington High? What are you going to miss, you know? And, and some of my classmates around me were kind of BSing and saying, oh, I'll miss my teachers. And I, and I couldn't wait to leave. You know, mm-hmm. I, was, I was going out of state. I was going to Ohio University. And uh, <laughs> so you always have kind of a love-hate relationship, as you know, with the place you come from when it's a place like that. And I said something like, I won't miss anything. I can't wait to get the hell out of here. And it was quoted in the paper. And my, oh. <laughs> my yeah. mom was always kind of embarrassed about that. But then, of course... You know the rest of the story because it happens to so many of us. I left. I lived in Ohio, then Austin, Texas, then Chicago for nine years. Mm -hmm. And slowly over that time, because of a mix of nostalgia and a renewed interest in the history of the place, stealing books from my dad about the coal mine wars, Mm -hmm. for instance, I just, uh, I I did kind of re-fall in love with it. Probably part of it is a little bit of a romanticization because you end up moving someplace totally flat and foreign to you like Chicago and you're like, oh man, I miss those mm-hmm. hills. And every time you go home, mm-hmm. the landscape is somehow you see it anew, you know. But you're um, writing about it the whole time, right? right? So what what <laughs> drove you to, when did you realize, you know, West Virginia is my, is it, is it your creative inspiration? It is. And I think I realized it in Texas. It took living in central Texas and seeing the insane amount of state pride those folks have for their Mm -hmm. state to kind of be like, well, you know, I've got that. You know, (laughs) I feel that way about my state. Because, again, every place, the more the more places you live, as you know, you realize the people there are probably a little bit misunderstood and more complex than you think they are. Mm -hmm. Like Texas, a place like Austin. Um, And so it was almost like a competitive thing. Like, well, you may love Texas, but. 
you should see West Virginia. So I did stupid things like get the state tattooed on my arm while I lived there. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That was another thing my wife wasn't wild about. <laughs> but so I was young. Uh, yeah. But that's that's when it happened. I was probably about, that was my 25th birthday, I think, when I got that tattoo. So I I started, it was being away um, that, that caused it. And that's when it happened. Um, and so I went from writing your kind of typical wandering drunk young male narrator stories in graduate school to kind of uh, writing more of, of the stuff you've probably mm-hmm. read of mine, which is set in the past and, yeah. and about, you know, the state's history. Well, I'm curious about that because I, I read somewhere that you first became interested in Centered Bottom through your, was your father telling stories about, you know, that area? Is that true? Yeah, it's kind of a mixture of things. My dad, others who, it, it, it frankly had a nationwide reputation at one point. So Soldier's Home on Leave, for instance, or people at the ports, at least on the East Coast, had heard of it, you know, mm-hmm. and they would go there because of, you know, you really can't put it any, any other way, the sheer amount of whorehouses in one little tiny place, you know, mm-hmm. one red light district within one, you know, relatively small town. Um I think one reviewer said it's like Deadwood of the Appalachians. It yeah. was kind of a, you know, a wild place like that. So, yes, people always made jokes when I was a kid like, um, well, he's gone off to Cinder Bottom, you know, and, and it was kind of like an inside joke. Okay. He's, he's uh, misbehaving. It was not still going at that time uh, when I was a kid, but it hadn't been too long. Then there was this other boom town called Thurmond that was famous for having a game of poker that supposedly went on for 14 years uninterrupted by switching players in and out. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd always been drawn to that. And that's how I write fiction. I kind of just mix stories that I hear from my dad and his mm-hmm. people down in southern West Virginia with other towns. And um, Well, that's so important, that sort of that oral tradition of yeah. story. How important is that to you? And how important is that to West Virginia? Wildly. And I think there are some things cropping up now. You know, I'm always telling my students about StoryCorps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just met another writer uh, this morning, Alicia Burton Steele, I think is her name, who's collecting oral histories um, from older African American women who were important in the civil rights struggle. Mm-hmm. I teach Studs Terkel, you know. I don't know if you're a Studs Terkel fan. Um, Joseph Mitchell is kind of one of my my favorite writers. So I, I mean, it's to me. There's this quote that I show my students um, from Harry Cruz, the Southern writer, um, and where where he says in that voice of his, you know, like stories was everything, and everything was stories. You know, I tell him just remember that. You know, just listen. Um, so. It's it's kind of impossible to to overstate how important the oral histories you refer to are, and I think that's what gave me a little bit of a jump start was hearing some some of the colorful language that gets used by the storytellers in yeah. the southern parts. Well, of the state. that's what. So Carolyn Kellogg says in the LA Times, she says that. Uh, oh wait, actually that is the wrong quote. But basically, every reviewer says that you are like incredible at capturing that archaic dialogue. Mm-hmm. How important was that to you? Is capturing that voice so important? And you know, and I didn't want to be like the nerdy observer guy who's like writing down every great phrase that I hear. But I mean, sometimes you just can't help yourself. Like mm-hmm. uh, I'll be with my dad, and we go down to Mate One and visit some old friends of his, and uh, one friend of his, Eddie Nenny, um, who still runs a store on Main Street in, in Mate One would just say little things and he's a great storyteller and 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 he just says little things in passing like he'll be talking about someone he'll say maury 
don't you know he ate half a dozen half a dozen eggs every morning of his life? Or maybe it was even a dozen. He may have yeah. said he ate a dozen eggs every morning of his life. That's what kept you know, that's what allowed him to live to be hundred and two years old. And I'm like, Yeah, you know, yeah. just my ear just picks up on that. And then of course I end up having a character in the book who insists on eating a half a dozen eggs at, in the morning, another half dozen at at uh noon and so it is pretty much all about the ear. Um and not to get too you know, cheesy on the whole thing. But if you do get in a, a good enough groove when you let all of this stuff kind of swirl together and you, you know, finally get mm-hmm. your butt in the seat and you, mm-hmm. on a consistent basis, it does kind of become a little bit like channeling where you are calling up those things you've written down or, or heard and they just kind of, they just go, you know, you just kind of let it rip through the, the characters you've created. I think most people listening are probably trying to find that. <laughs> That groove there. Hey, me too, man. I've got three kids under 12, and it's harder and harder yeah. to find that groove. Well, what's it's, <laughs> it's interesting to me is that you talk... I mean, we got about two more questions. Mm-hmm. You talk about walking around in this desolate place, you know, and, but, you know, really, are you trying to bring life back into this area that maybe has been passed by? Very much so, and that might seem like an unrealistic goal, especially for, you know, kind of a mid-level novelist but i i can't help but be wildly hopeful about the future i guess because of wanting to make sure that those oral histories you asked about are told so for instance even in a place like keystone now my dad and i went down there oh gosh it was while i was writing the books that's probably been three four summers ago and as i mentioned there's nothing there but a woman pulls up in her car to her house as my dad and I are like looking around these weed-covered fields trying to figure out where the hell Cinderbottom was. Um, and so, of course, he says to her, excuse me, ma'am, um, we're trying to figure out where Cinderbottom was. And she says, well, honey, you standing in it. You know? <laughs> and we're like, this is it. And she then proceeds to tell us the story of how she moved there from the south with her family when her dad got a job in the coal mines in the uh-huh. 1950s. And their rule was... They were not allowed to go past the chain link fence past seven at night because the streets were so wild. Uh, but she stayed, you know. And then I met another guy down there named Alan Cathead Johnston, who's a musician. And the way I met him, and this is a long way to get back to the root of your question, is in a um, documentary called Hollow. Um, it's a documentary by Elaine McMillian Sheldon, who. Mm-hmm actually lived in Miami for a little while. Um, it won a Peabody Award. It's an incredible documentary about McDowell County, West Virginia, but really about any place that has kind of been forgotten and mm-hmm. had industry and, and the jobs that you're asking about fall out, had the bottom fall out. It's a beautiful documentary called Hollow, a documentary about a place. And um, I saw this musician on there and photographer, Alan Johnston, and he was talking about the place and documenting the place and writing songs about the floods in McDowell County and the loss of coal mining jobs in such a beautiful and heartfelt way and writing about um, the hanging of John Hardy, which was another influence on mm-hmm. this book. Um, and and so those kind of, when you see those types of folktales still alive and the very few folks who still live down there and they're still interested in photography and they're still interested in making songs and you have to have a little bit of, of hope left, you know. And so I do, I, I think that, um, you know, I got an email recently from, uh, I can't remember her name exactly, but Andrea at the McDowell County Public Library. And she asked if I could send several books because they had people, you know, requesting them. And I was mm-hmm. like, whew, 
because sometimes you get really nervous when you write kind of a wild tale like this one, the oh no, another writer writing about the mm-hmm. the wild, terrible things that go on in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, I dedicated the book to the people of McDowell County. So I, I think, I'd like to think I'm honoring them by showing what a booming place it once was. And I'd like to think that somehow in, in doing so, you can kind of call attention to how it is now and maybe get the general public as well yeah. as, you know, industry and the government to kind of think a little more about a, a place. I mean, you've probably heard that term sacrifice zone. I mean, we, we just call places sacrifice zones hmm. now, you know, in this country. and There shouldn't really be any sacrifice zones, it seems to me. You yeah. Know? So finally, you know, you're really, it's almost like you're a, a, a folk artist really in a sense would you say that's a okay term for you or sure i'll take it i appreciate it you know i mean you know how it is with terms like um historical fiction sometimes i hear that and i've I've always been confused about that term because sometimes it seems a little bit more like costumes and heavily decorative you know writing about past times and so but but yeah, I don't think I could ever be opposed to the term folk artist. <laughs> well, like you know, when I when I read your work, I do think of like really great folk musicians. Like I think oh. of Dylan, and I think of all the other people who are telling these stories and keeping them going in certain ways and reinventing them. Thank but you. you know, that is a hard thing to do as an artist, as a mm-hmm. creative, to build that life. Mm-hmm. I mean, what were the challenges along the way that you can think of that made this possible for you to pursue that? I was kind of, I have to I have to call myself out and say again that I was pretty lucky in that regard. Not only having the parents that kind of said, well, if he's going to make a run at this artsy-fartsy thing, we'll let him. But also coming from a, kind of a solid family that could help me out financially if I was kind of struggling for a while. Or my wife, Margaret, you know, when we lived in Texas, she carried us. She was teaching uh, middle school at the time in Austin. Um, and so I've kind of been lucky to. Well, what be about sur- mentally, though? I mean, oh. isn't that part of the challenge? Is that how do you how do you you yeah. said like sitting in the chair? I mean, yeah, I kind of had to find my way through that one, like we all do. For a while, I think I you know I was just hitting the drink pretty hard. But <laughs> I, I quit that you know at some point, and I think that helped me kind of buckle down yeah. a little bit better. So I kind of I was living that wild life for a while, which you know you can kind of do as an artist. It's yeah. kind of people allow it. Um, so that was that was my thing for a while, and then I don't know. Then I think strangely, once you, when you said like the the mental struggle to do it, I I think it becomes its own cure. You know, like you put yourself in the chair and write every day because you know, much like physical fitness for a lot of people, if you don't, then you're not feeling that great, you know, mentally and emotionally. So, so you have to do it. Yeah, you kind of have to do it. Great. I think it's a great place to end it. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time. And you're, you're, you are no longer listening to the Working Poet Radio Show.